We think about changing corporate tax rates or issuing debt or changing environmental regulation. Those events are clearly defined. They happen in the actual world and we can measure the stock price changes associated with those events in the actual world. But when we move into securities fraud litigation, we're moving into a hypothetical world that's postulated by plaintiffs. Welcome to the Brattle Exchange, where we explore critical economic, financial, and accounting topics with Brattle experts and influential voices from industry and academia. It's hosted by the Brattle Group, a global consulting firm that tackles complex economic, financial, and regulatory questions for corporations, law firms, and governments around the world. Welcome to the second episode of our podcast focused on Halliburton II and the role of event studies in assessing price impacts. I'm Dr. Torben Volkman, president of the Bridal Group, and I'm looking forward to another discussion with Dr. Drew Roper, co-leader of our securities class action practice. In our first episode, we discussed how courts have become more accustomed to examining price impact during class certification. We explored some of the issues that arose when courts turned to event studies to address this inquiry. Now we peel back the layers once more to go deeper. Today, in the second episode, we look at the role of investor sentiment in third-party disclosures when assessing price impact. Once again, our conversations draw from the published research articles, which we have linked in the show notes. Let's get started. Thanks for having me today, Torben. So a uh, question on the table is, what do economists mean when we talk about price impact? Well, in the simplest terms, when we economists talk about price impact, we're asking, what causes a stock price to change? Specifically, oftentimes we're asking, did the stock price change because of some new information was made available? So in economics, generally in the field, we ask this type of question all the time. In corporate finance, uh, we'll examine price impact to better understand how corporate decisions affect the fortunes of investors. One example might be, would investors be better off if we lowered the corporate tax rate? Right? We have a change in the corporate tax rate, and we're asking on average, are investors made worse or better off across different corporations? Alternatively, we might ask, would an investor be better off if a corporation issued debt? We'd look at the debt issuance and we'd ask the question, do we see a change in the stock price because of the debt issuance? Lastly, we might ask, how would investors fare if we changed environmental regulations? So we'd look at a cause of a change in environmental regulation, and we'd look at the impact on stock prices. And each of these questions were asking whether an identified event here, either a change in corporate tax rate, an issuance of debt, or maybe a change in environmental regulation, we're asking whether that identified event caused a stock price to actually change. So when we talk about price impact and economics, we are asking what caused the price to change? I think that's what I just heard. Let's bring that to our world. Uh, Drew, you and I both love research, but what is price impacts when you think about it in the context of securities litigation? So in securities fraud litigation, we're generally interested in knowing whether some public disclosure caused a price to change. Everyday folk can sue to recover damages if a company misrepresents material information to investors. To determine the damage that they may be able to recover, we need to understand how and when the alleged representations change the market price of the security. So in section 10, we're often asking the question, did a company's disclosure cause a price to change? So here's a simple example that maybe we can play with for today's discussion. Let's play with example four from my article. In this example, we have a company that discloses at the beginning of the year that it wants to maintain its guidance for earnings that it had previously given to the market. 
So at the beginning of the year, the company's going to disclose, we're maintaining our guidance of 10 cents a share. Now let's put this statement in the context of a securities fraud claim. Let's assume plaintiffs allege that at the time the company said it wanted to maintain guidance, that the company in fact had no reasonable basis to maintain that guidance. Under plaintiff's theory, the company should have announced that it would have earned only nine cents instead of reporting that it still believed it could earn 10 cents. Plaintiffs are going to say that this fraud caused investors to lose money because at the end of the year, when the firm actually reports on its earnings, the firm is going to report the nine cents. Plaintiff in this case is going to allege that the earnings miss resulted in a stock price decline which was caused by the earlier misrepresentation when we maintained the guidance in the first place. So in the context of this example, we can see a couple of areas that we're looking at price impact. When we attempt to measure damages for this type of claim, we're asked to think about how much the price might have changed at the time the guidance was maintained if, in fact, the market had learned that the guidance should have been lowered. Separately, we're asked to examine how much did the price change when the market actually learned the truth. That is, when the market learned that the company could only earn nine cents. The first inquiry in damages relates to something we call inflation and securities fraud litigation. If the stock price is inflated at the purchase time because of the alleged misrepresentation, then investors may be able to recover this inflation. In terms of price impact, what we're asking is, is the price inflated at the time the guidance was issued? Now, there's a second question that we also ask about price impact. We also look to when the truth is revealed, and we ask the question, did the price fall because of the alleged misrepresentation? So the economic analysis of price impact and damages really relates to two parts uh, of, of the equation. It relates to what is the inflation and how much of the price decline is actually caused by the fraud, which is loss causation. I like your example four, but let, let's talk about when the price impact is measured by the actual change in the total mix of information available to the market and the hypothetical change in the total mix of information available to the market. Uh, in your article, uh, I noticed that you examined the role of event studies in assessing price impact, and you specifically point out that there arises an important distinction between the hypothetical change in the total mix of information and the actual change in total mix an event study analysis of the announcement can only assess whether there is a reliable indication of an actual change in stock price that resulted from an actual change in the total mix of information. And you go on to uh, say that, namely, the inquiry into price impact might be well dependent upon plaintiff's allegation, in particular plaintiff's position on what a company could and should have said at the time of the alleged misrepresentation. It can be important to know that the plaintiff's theory is as to what could and should have been disclosed instead in order to understand the hypothetical change in the total mix of information. After all, the price impact inquiry at issue may relate legally to the price impact caused by the alleged falsity of the misrepresentation and not just the fact of a misrepresentation was made. So do I, I was trying to paraphrase your, your article here a little bit, but what I hear is two things. Uh, first, event studies are good at assessing whether actual changes in the available information caused an actual change in the stock price. So that is the event study looks at the actual change, try to attribute the observed change to some observable change in the total mix of information. 
And the, the second thing I hear is plaintiff's theory of fraud play an important role in how we think about price impact. Specifically, plaintiff, plaintiff's theory of fraud in principle should identify the change in the mix of information that, are, that, that corrected the alleged mis misrepresentation. Um, this change in information caused by the fraud can be something different uh, than the change in the actual information that we observed by an event study. Yeah, that's right, Torben. So th those are different concepts, right? In event studies, if we think back to the examples that we gave, event studies are really designed to assess cause and effect when we can see the cause clearly, right? We think about changing corporate tax rates or issuing debt or changing environmental regulation. Those events are clearly defined. They're something that are happening in the actual world. They happen in the actual world, and we can measure the stock price changes associated with those events in the actual world. But when we move into security fraud litigation, we're moving into a hypothetical world that's postulated by plaintiffs. And that hypothetical world sometimes is not always observed in the actual world. This is where event studies tend to lack power. Event studies will have more power to detect things like causation and fraud or inflation and fraud when the hypothetical changes that are postulated under plaintiff's theory of harm are the exact same as the actual changes in the information that we observe in the marketplace. But when plaintiff's theory of harm centers on a hypothetical change in information that's not observed in the actual world of disclosures, then the event studies begin to lose power to detect the price impact. So when I'm advising clients or I'm talking with the trier of fact, I make a distinction between the information in the actual world and the information in the hypothetical world of fraud, because this is going to become the sin of debate over the reliability of the expert's event study testimony. So that is to say, we have to be careful to examine situations when the actual world gets confused with the hypothetical world of the fraud. Uh, Drew, that's an interesting framing. In damages, we sometimes think about this hypothetical world as a but-for world or, or the counterfactual world. In either case, we as economists are asking the question, what does plaintiff's theory of harm alleged should and could have been disclosed? If we know precisely what plaintiff's theory of harm alleges could and should have been disclosed, then we can have a hypothetical change in the total mix of information that can be examined. We can search for that in the actual information and see what happened to the price or see if it had a price impact. But this requires that we observe the hypothetical change proposed by plaintiffs in the actual information that exists in the real life. That's right, Turbin. We have to observe the hypothetical change proposed by the plaintiffs in the actual information, right? Because that's what the event studies is good at assessing. So, so let's go back to my prior example, example four from the paper, and let's see where the hypothetical information is and where the actual information is. Recall that in my example, that the company maintained guidance of 10 cents, but plaintiffs said it should have said the guidance was only 9 cents. With that specification, we have the hypothetical disclosure by the plaintiffs. The, the hypothetical disclosure is you should have told us that you were lowering guidance to 9 cents. We can look at that hypothetical disclosure relative to the 10 cents that was said, and we can come to that the hypothetical change under plaintiff's theory of harm is the penny between 10 cents and 9 cents. Now, the question is, is where do we see that in the real world? Where do we see the investor learning that there's a penny difference here? When we go to the time that they maintain the guidance of 10 cents, they believed coming in, the market believed coming in that the company was going to earn 10 cents. 
In the actual world, the company maintained that guidance of 10 cents. So at that time, the hypothetical world is not known to the marketplace. If we look at that point in time, the time when the guidance is maintained, we don't have the change in the hypothetical information the plaintiff has attached to its theory of harm. But now let's roll the clock forward. Let's roll the clock forward to the end of the year. At the end of the year, when the company announces its earnings, the company announces nine cents, and the market coming into that announcement had believed, because the guidance was maintained, that they were going to earn 10 cents. Now in the actual world, we have a change in the actual information. In the actual world, prior to the announcement, 10 cents. After the announcements, 9 cents. The difference in the actual world at the time, at the end of the year, is the penny. And that penny appears to relate to plaintiff's allegation of harm. So what we learn from this example is that we sometimes have to identify where the change in the hypothetical information occurs, and it may not occur when the allegation first enters the marketplace. It may occur when the information is revealed and the truth is revealed. However, even in this case, we see on the back end that there is a penny miss. There's still a question on the table. Is the penny miss that we observe at the corrective disclosure is that penny miss, the change in the actual information, is that showing us the same price impact that would have occurred had there been a hypothetical change in the information at the beginning of time? To address this question, oftentimes the economist has to go further than the event study. They have to address the question by specifying what is the counterfactual disclosure? What is the but-for disclosure precisely so we can accurately identify the price impact associated with plaintiff's theory of harm. So, so Drew, in your example, the change in the actual information mix on the date of the earnings result announcement was one penny or one cent per share. As you say, factually, this looks like it matches up with the hypothetical change in the total mix of information. So factually, it seems like this example, in this example, the event study technology may be able to answer the question, did the one cent, the one penny decline impact the price? But I, I noticed or uh, I sensed that you hesitated a little bit in your answer earlier. You said, we have to ask as economists, is, is the change observed in, in the actual world, the change the plaintiffs are alleging would have occurred earlier? Why are you uh, slowing us down here, Drew? What's, how does that factor into your conclusion that you were trying to reach? Yeah, so let's go to the question, the, you know, the question you framed. Did the penny decline impact the price? So the penny earnings miss, did it impact the price? The event study is going to tell us whether or not it did. But there's a separate question in the litigation, which is, would this penny, this hypothetical change in the actual disclosure, would it have impacted the price earlier in time? The event study tells us it impacted the price at the time it was disclosed. Can we extend that back to imply a price impact earlier? What does the event study have to say about this? Well, that's where the event study starts to get limited. It really all depends on what was happening in the real world when plaintiff told us about their alleged misrepresentation. And it happens to matter what was happening in the real world when plaintiff tells us that it missed its earnings guidance. So in our example, we said that plaintiff tells us we could and should have lowered our guidance to nine cents a share early in time, way back in time were asked to examine that price impact, what happened in between? Let's suppose 
that in between the time that we maintained our guidance of 10 cents and the time that we announced our earnings miss of 9 cents, let's suppose that in between those two events, the company had issued new debt. Hypothetically, assume that that new debt had covenants attached to it and that those covenants would trigger default if the firm's earnings fell to 9 cents or lower. So in this hypothetical, when the actual information reveals the earnings miss, 10 cents to 9 cents, that same information is revealed in a different contextual environment. Now we're in a contextual environment in which that earnings myth could matter more because there's a covenant restriction on debt that's being triggered. But notice if we go back to the time that we maintained the guidance, that debt was not in place. And if that debt wasn't in place at that time without that covenant restriction, the price impact may have been substantially different. So when we're looking at the actual world, we have to be specific in what is supposed to happen in the counterfactual worlds. In this case, the counterfactual world is only the penny change in guidance. It's not, and you issue debt. The event study is going to be really good at assessing what's happening in the actual world. In the case of this example, you missed your earnings announcement in the context of having issued debt. That may not be legally the question that we're asking. We need to be able to isolate what is the hypothetical change. We need to be able to specify what is the counterfactual. So one reason event studies have to be carefully interpreted, if I'm hearing you correct, is that the change in the total mix of information postulated by plaintiffs in the hypothetical world is not the same always, or sometimes it's not the same as the change in the actual world. So in the counterfactual, those price impacts we want to understand does not always show up cleanly in the actual disclosures that we might examine. It can be maybe because of confounding information, or it can be confounded by a change, change circumstance unrelated to, a, to the alleged misrepresentation. If it's confounded by change circumstances, the change in the actual information includes these change circumstances. So therefore, if I heard you correctly, it does not mess up with the change in the hypothetical or counterfactual world, uh, or it does not mess up with the change in the hypothetical change in information created by plaintiff's theory of harm and the counterfactual supporting that theory. So what I heard you talk about and, and what I think you are trying to articulate with your example four is that a properly constructed counterfactual must take into account not only the content of what could have and should have been disclosed, but also how observable losses following corrective disclosures in the real world translate into losses in that counterfactual world. So we call that, as you said, the event study is good at attributing losses in the actual world to changes in the total mix of information that are observed in the actual world. So that leads me to think that if we have not really well specified the counterfactual disclosure, then we run the risk of not being able to correctly interpret the results of the event study, or we can misinterpret the result of the event study. As we think about this, and I thought about this at the time, there's many examples where we run this risk. Your article gave us some examples that I haven't thought of before of how event studies can conflate the changes in the actual world with changes in the hypothetical world articulated under plaintiff's theory of harm. You talk of specifically about how this can get confused and how the counterfactual disclosure is important, particularly when it's third parties that are issuing public disclosures that are deemed to be corrective under plaintiff's theory of harm. These are so-called third-party disclosures. I'd love to get your thoughts here. Right? I mean, I've come across third-party disclosures in the past. They were 
pretty common back in the day, particularly around options backdating scandal, where options backdating was first announced for many companies by the announcement of an SEC investigation. That's an example of a third party that's making an allegation of misconduct. And in that context, we often questioned whether the announcements that were associated with these disclosures of investigations would have the same price impact as the actual hypothetical disclosure, which is you did actually backdate your options. Today, these third-party disclosures can come from all sorts of places. We've seen a major shift in where investors are looking for news. They're looking for news moving away from print and moving online. We see rising information being published online across a variety of sources. And one of those rising popular sources is Seeking Alpha. And Seeking Alpha often has what are called short-selling reports. So Torben, you took a deep dive looking at these short-selling reports on Seeking Alpha and other platforms. So what are these third-party short-selling reports all about? What we know is there's been a substantial increase in securities class action cases filed using third-party disclosures as the corrective disclosures. What we noticed is that there's been an emergence of online websites providing financial news and investment opinions that may have implications on how we interpret event studies. The emergence of online websites provide financial news and investment opinions that has an implication on how we interpret our event study results that we perform. This happens because sometimes the source simply rebroadcast pre-existing stories overlaid with new information or new opinions, or, or sometimes it's simply just casting a new tone on the information. So for example, we know that approximately 20 million users, unique users uh, visit Seeking Alpha each month, making it one of the largest investment-related forms on the internet. And the popularity of Seeking Alpha and similar platforms allow individuals to share millions of sophisticated, non-sophisticated investors, their investment thesis. So short sellers use this type of platform to publish investment thesis that a stock is overvalued or maybe overvalued and advocating for a short position in that stock. Hence, we refer to these recommendations as short reports. In our article, we specifically highlight a number of academic studies that have examined this phenomenon of, of short reports. But academic studies show that the publicity is a key feature of these short reports that can lead to large uh, price declines uh, in the companies that they target. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's, that's like uh, the examples of the event study we gave, right? We gave, you can change the corporate tax rate, you can issue debt, or you can change environmental regulation. In the context of these academic studies, they're looking at what happens when companies uh, are the subject of short reports. So that's an interesting question because we're looking across a bunch of different companies and a lot of things come to mind. We, we know from financial economics that investor sentiment can impact how information affects stock prices. We know that potentially the way information is actually packaged when it's published may affect the size of the stock price response uh, to this same information. Your article looked at this, right? What did you find? You know, what did the academic literature say? And, and how have courts been dealing with this issue of repackaging information in investor sentiment? That's right, uh, Drew. We took a close look at this. And, and academic research, if we start there, ha have produced some very good examples uh, where the tone matters. I mean, the, the tone you use when you convey new information, and that matters, and it, we can observe that in the stock price response. Consider the impact of financial media in the case of biotechnology company, IntriMed, 
Intermed stock price tripled in early May 1998 following the publication of a front-page New York Times article. This New York Times article reported on Intermed's breakthrough in cancer research, and it led to a, a, a ride in the stock price from $12 before the announcement to $85, and then it, it came back down, settling at $52. So we have this tripling effect. It seemed like that news story of the cancer research was really good news. The problem that the academic researchers looked into was that CNN, CNBC, and even the New York Times itself had reported that exact same story uh, five months earlier. The difference uh, was perhaps that this article today was more prominent. It had an exceptional optimistic tone about the findings of this research. The problem is the stock price did not blink or move when it was originally reported, uh, but it shocked the foundations when it was re-reported by the New York Times. So academic studies, and this was highlighted, uh, this particular event was discussed and highlighted in the, in a Journal of Finance article uh, called Contagious Speculation, the Cure for Cancer, a non-event that made the stock price soar. Uh, there's other academic articles like this, Drew, that have looked into this tone and the sentiment of, of information, how that matters. Another article uh, from 2011 was uh, giving content to investor sentiment, the role of media in the stock market. It concludes that Media pessimism introduces downward pressure on stock prices. Again, these articles that highlight that the tone in which information is conveyed to the market matters. Other published articles show that the market participants can fail to identify news as stale when the stale news is repackaged, along with other stale news, into a new single report. Yeah, so that's, that's interesting, Torben. So what I'm hearing is the academic literature has identified that there are instances where tone might cause a reaction as opposed to the newness of the news itself. And we also see that these studies can identify sometimes that news is stale, meaning it's been published before, but how it's repackaged can lead to a price impact. So how are courts dealing with this issue? That's exactly right, Drew. In, in the context of litigation of courts, we have to ask the specific question or the question we ask is whether a hypothetical change in information uh, caused by the alleged fraud caused a cha change in the price. We are not asking whether the tone of the message caused the change in the price. We are specifically focusing on the information, typically. Uh, so in our article, we looked at this and we see how the courts are dealing with these issues. And here's what we found. You know, we saw in the Meyer versus Green of 2013 case, it, it talked about a disclosures that includes entirely new information not already known to the public could be considered uh, a corrective disclosure. It, it concluded that a merely repackaging of all already publicly available information by analysts or short sellers is simply insufficient to constitute a corrective disclosure. So we have one court coming out and saying repackaging, and, and if it's not new information, uh, it's not a corrective disclosure. Then we have another court decision in the 2014 Fifth Circuit. Uh, it came out and said, well, some corrective disclosures could be that if, if we have republishing of new previously known information uh, to the market, but we are providing additional scientific data or additional information around it that would not otherwise before be understood by investors, then that could be a corrective disclosure. Uh, so there's a little bit of a mixed uh, view on this, Drew, in the market, uh, at least in the courts, about what these kind of repackaging of information, what, 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 how they should deal with that. But notwithstanding that, what happens when the corrective disclosure contains both new and old 
information in those cases, as, as we have always done, Drew, it's necessary to differentiate between the new and the old in order to establish the corrective impact uh, or how the, the information of this uh, corrective impact, what, what was caused by the new information and not by potentially confounding information such as a new opinion based on the old information already known. Take the example of the Meyer versus Green. There, the, the United States Court of Appeals of the 11th Circuit held that if the information relied upon informing an opinion was previously known by the market, the only thing actually disclosed to the market when the opinion is released is the opinion itself. And such an opinion, standing alone, cannot reveal to the market the falsity of the company's prior fa uh, factual representation. And the court went on to further explain that such opinions are exactly the type of confounding information, including changed economic circumstances, changed investor expectations, new industry-specific specific or company-firm-specific facts, conditions, and other events that do not actually qualify as a corrective disclosure. So in that one case, at least Drew, it's kind of the practice as always. You have to have some kind of new information, but there certainly are other courts that are focusing on, on the tone and the sentiment. And so we might see that being picked up more as we go forward. That's great, Torben. So what I am hearing is, is good news. I'm hearing the court is, is on to the issue that you raise in your article and that was addressed in my article. And they're, they're looking to the economist to help uh, the court identify what information is new, what information is not new, and how that information relates to the alleged fraud. So in a sense, they're, they're doing exactly uh, what we would expect them to do in economics. One of the things that we notice that they're focusing on, as you pointed out, is the distinction between the change in the actual information in the context of a short report, the change in the actual information might include that tone of the short report versus the change in the hypothetical information necessitated to correct the alleged fraud. So they're really focused on the price impact of the alleged fraud. They're focused on the price impact of the counterfactual. But as you pointed out, there are instances where the court's been willing to say, okay, look, I get it. You see a lot of the information out there before. But this source kind of put it all together, provided it, repackaged it in a way that made it more informative for investors, right? Maybe you can understand the complexity of the fraud for the first time through this repackaging. So what's the distinguishing feature here on repackaging? How are courts uh, delineating when repackaging is good and when it's bad? How are they wading into this debate? Well, the, the short answer is they are waiting in, weighing into this debate. We see instances where courts are, are saying that disclosures that we we published previously known information that provided the disclosures themselves do real work to unpack complex public materials, for example, financials or scientific data, that could not otherwise be understood by investors. That might be a way to make this a corrective disclosure. So the courts are certainly looking at that. We saw in the Fifth Circuit decision where the court found that complex economic data understandable only through expert analysis may not be readily digestible by the market and therefore might upend the efficient, efficient market theory. And the court concluded that it's possible at the pleading stage that the public might not be aware of the hidden meaning of public data such that later analysis and publication by an expert would constitute a corrective disclosure. So again, another example that the court drew is clearly thinking about the understanding and the hidden meaning of this information that we're looking at. So again, here's an example where the court appears to be saying we can let it pass through pleading, but we want to talk about this later, maybe at the merit stage, because you still have to do the price impact analysis subsequently to this. We also saw Drew in the Ninth Circuit decision of taking a similar approach, 
So, so the, the Ninth Circuit took a similar approach to the Apollo securities fraud litigation, where a third party disclosure is corrected when, among other things, it provides more authoritative information or it helps the market better appreciate the existing public information significance. So even if the disclosure does not do expert level work to unpack the information, it might still raise to the level of being a corrective disclosure. We have also seen that courts are willing to draw a line around the, what, what qualifies as new when information is repackaged. In another Ninth Circuit opinion, the Grigsby litigation, the court looked at the reliability of the source to determine whether to constitute the third party knowledge should be considered. The court in Grigsby said that short seller reports at issue did not constitute a corrective disclosure in part because it was written by an anonymous short seller with no expertise beyond that of a typical market participant who based the article solely on information found in the public sources. So we do see, we do see the courts wading into the issues that are being raised by the economist. And what we're seeing is that economists recognize that event studies can be limited, that they're designed to assess really what happens in the actual world when there's an actual change in information. And in the securities fraud litigation context, we're often tasked with a different question about assessing what might happen in a hypothetical world if there was a hypothetical change in the information. So it makes sense for the economist to delve into the issue of what is the actual counterfactual world? What is the plaintiff saying should and could have been said? And that makes sense in the context of PSLRA, which is asking for specificity in that pleading. It gives it gives a rationale for PSLRA in a sense. We need that specificity to be able to assess price impact because the changes in the actual world are not necessarily the changes in the hypothetical world. And as we pointed out, sometimes the event study can get confused by those two concepts. Do if I can just add to that, I think that a properly constructed counterfactual must take into account not only the content of, as you put it, what could have and should have been disclosed, but also how observable losses following corrective disclosures in the real world translate to losses in that counterfactual world. And I think as economists, you and I have to deal with this question, which is how to answer the, the causation question through a properly constructed counterfactual. It's a complex and multifaceted inquiry that requires a consideration of not only the substance of confounding information, but also the manner in which such information is communicated to the market. I agree. That's perfect. Thanks, Drew. Uh, on behalf of Dr. Drew Roper and, and I, Dr. Tobin Wokman, we'd like to thank you for listening to the podcast brought to you by the Bridal Group and the Bridal Exchange. We look forward to exploring additional topics in the future. On behalf of Torben Voten and myself, thank you for joining us in the Brattle Exchange in this inaugural podcast series on Halliburton, Price Impact, and Event Studies. 